carry those for you uh, during the coming days. So that'll be in the narthex uh, during the communion service. The question I want to invite you to consider this morning is, what impresses you? Toxic is the Oxford Dictionary 2018 word of the year. After analyzing 150 million words, this was the word chosen to describe the ethos of 2018, toxic. Oxford pointed to the use of the word toxic literally in describing chemicals and plastics, but also in describing metaphorically corporate and human relationships. And it said that the Me Too movement had put the spotlight on toxic masculinity, while in politics the word has been applied to the rhetoric, the policies, the agendas, and the legacies of leaders and governments around the globe. And the rhetoric continues in all these areas. And I'm reminded of the delightful Robert Frost, the poignant Robert Frost poem that ends, the woods are lovely, dark, and deep, but I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep. And yet the promises we often hear from leaders today result in the reality that most will not be kept. Some will overtly be broken, and yet the slogans continue to captivate and woo us. And yet, if you look around, we see signs of gloom and doom all around us. And our gospel text tells us that this is what it was like then as well. And it also suggests that this is going to continue, except in the age to come, in the kingdom, which ironically Jesus suggests is already within you. And so my point this morning is that if the kingdom is already within us, then this must be about awareness, awareness of things that are already eternal. The end of the age is palpable in this week's reading from Mark's Gospel. Nothing that seems established will finally stand. Not the temple, nor the nations, nor the land, nor the sky can be considered stable. Everything is or will be shaken. And the shaking itself, Jesus warns, is just birth pangs and just the beginning of those at that. And Jesus warns just as clearly that during the onset of these birth pangs, there will be a lot of people claiming to be saviors of this human project, to be the deliverer who can lead the way out of the birth pangs and back to some sort of stability. And their slogans are everywhere. Make America great again. Make the church great again. Real change, vote for change, manufacturing yes, nation wrecking no. Change you can think about, for the many, for the few. If England falls, you fall, or an opposition party slogan, a lack of change that we can believe in. And my favorite, God bless America, but God help Canada to put up with them. <laughs> 
All saviors make these claims. And Jesus says they are false messiahs. He's not saying they're necessarily bad people, but they're false messiahs. They are acting as if the age to come can be resisted and turned back. And it can't, Jesus says. They are an intrinsic part of God's renovation of all things. Resistance turns out to be worse than futile. It's abortive. But in so describing the, the inevitability of such shaking on a global scale, Jesus is not calling for passivity, for us to sit around and wait as if these things will happen and there's nothing that we can or should do about it. To the contrary, this is a clarion call to the disciples and to us to stay on task, to continue to bring good news to the poor, to forgive sinners, to heal the sick, to cast out demons and even raise the dead. In short, to be aware at a different level than the culture. And I want to suggest that to understand this gospel story, we have to include the story that came just before in chapter 12. It goes like this. And as he taught, he said, beware of the scribes, the religious leaders, who like to walk around in long robes and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to have the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at the banquets. They devour widows' houses and for the sake of appearance say long prayers. They will receive the greatest condemnation. And then right after them, notice what Jesus notices. He sat down opposite the treasury after this and watched the crowd putting money into the treasury. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small coins, which are worth a penny. And then he called his disciples and said to them, Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the treasury, for all of them have contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This is a condemnation of the religious leaders where Jesus not only exposes their craving for human honor, but also shows a concrete example of their exploitation of the poor. They devour widows' houses, and to look good, they say long prayers. And then Jesus observes and shows them what he is amazed at. A widow donating a penny. She is the one that is honored by him. Not just because she gave it all, but because she gave it from a pure heart. And ironically, it seems like the disciples are not impressed with her. Perhaps sort of getting the story about the rich people who are putting their money in to be seen. But immediately the disciples are impressed with the same things that these religious leaders are impressed with, the temple structure. But what they are impressed with is unimpressive to Jesus, and he shares how temporary all this stuff is. In our Hebrew text, we are called to consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds. 
This is what impresses Jesus. Love and good deeds. We are not the saviors. Our denomination is not the savior. Our leaders are not the savior. Our story is an invitation by Christ to focus on different things than our materialistic and power-oriented society and culture. However, neither is our story to be one of hellfire and brimstone, preoccupied with Armageddon and gloom and doom, as tempting as that can be. But we are called to notice and affirm the heart of love wherever we see it, whether in a poor widow or the behind-the-scenes sacrificial giving of the wealthy. It's about an attitude of the heart, and we are called to value lightly what the world's power deems solid and foundational, and to lean heavy into the divine reality that Jesus incarnated. What might this difference in focus look like? Richard Rohr suggests that we focus on the givens, and he defines the givens as the things that God has created. And he says our cultural temptation and perhaps most of our culture is 90 to 95% focused on the things that we as humans have created. And we give very little impact or weight to the things that God has created. The fruits of the Spirit, not just the created order. Not just embodying them, but noticing them in the midst of all these birth pangs and forbidding signs. We love and support immigrants until they no longer are immigrants because they've become part of the family. We feed the hungry, not because it looks good on us, but because we don't like to see those we love be hungry. Or let me focus a little bit on what our congregation is confronted with. What do you do with $1.2 million? Is it about this temple? Is it about, look what we've created? to honor God. And yet the temple is important. Jesus went to the temple as a place of gathering, discussion, and worship regularly. However, he was also aware of how easily we take our sense of belonging and identity from what we create instead of from what God creates, the givens. And the temple is called to be a place of service, not exploitation. Amidst the excesses that fed the ego of the culture and the religious leaders of the time, Jesus is suggesting that the widow's few pennies were more impressive than the large look-at-me gift of its patrons. It's not about the gift. It's about the giver and the giver's attitude. And the overriding question for Christ and us is, are we giving and living as an act of love. And while this space is important, all space is important, it is more, most important as a space where the givens, the realities that God desires, are invited and incarnated. And they will know we are Christians because we were able to fix up our leaky hall. No, they will know we are Christians because we fixed our leaky hall as a place and a space for love to be incarnate, to find residence. 
I want to tell a story of a very wealthy friend of mine who insists on remaining anonymous. He didn't like to be called a philanthropist. He didn't make the money, he inherited a large fortune, fortune close to a billion dollars, and established a trust fund. What he preferred to be called was a follower of Jesus, which for him was synonymous with Christian. His philanthropy was huge and silent, behind the scenes. He lived in a small middle-class home, still does, and drove a 10-year-old Honda. He lived, and he never looked the part. I only knew him and his extensive giving because I served on a board with him. And he told us we were not to talk about his generosity. So one day I'm flying from Fresno back to San Francisco where I was teaching. And I was flying on a red eye because it was only $199. Um, first class was $1,900, I think. And business class was 1200 or something like that. And so I'm on the red eye. And who should be sitting beside me but I'll call him John. Flying on this red eye. And I hadn't seen him for a while. And we had a lovely chat. And it all of a sudden occurred to me, why the heck is John flying on this red eye? And I said, John, what's with the red eye? I mean, it's midnight. <laughs> and he said, well, yeah, he says the temptation is there. $1,900 for a first class ticket, $1,200 for business class. And I watched this tear appear in his eye. And he said, do you know what $1,200 does in Haiti? So in these stories, Christ is affirming and questioning these extremes. Are we living a life that is primarily impressed and in awe of the givens? Or are we living a life that is primarily impressed and preoccupied with the things that we have created? Love ensures that the things we create are there to serve the givens, to serve that which God has created. Ego is concerned with the opposite. And this is a call to faithfulness, more than a call to success. This is an invitation for us to notice what impresses us. A song that reflects this focus on the givens as the things that God has created has spoken to me this week. I want to read you the words, because I'll destroy it if I sing them. After black and white fades into gray, after all my fears have gone away, after there is nothing more that I can say, I am convinced that love remains. After all the truth and all the lies, after all I have broken that I have tried, and after I have said all of my goodbyes, I am convinced that love remains. If not for this, what else could there be? If not for this, where would I be? Where would I be? After all I've lost and all I've gained, and after all I have tried so hard to explain, and after you have carried all the pain, I am convinced that love remains. The divine necessity is love. This is wonderfully emphasized in St. Paul's words in Corinthians, ending with, and now abides faith, hope, and love. 
The greatest of these, he says, is love. Why might it be the greatest? Perhaps it's the only one that continues after everything else fades. Temples will come, temples will go. Egos will come, egos will go. And all we create will come and go. But love and its actions will remain. So what should amaze us? Notice the spaces, the places, the relationships where you see love. Affirm those. Aspire to those. Be aware of them. For they will stand both the test of time and eternity. Amen.